Okay, good morning. We're, uh, Hebrews chapter 1. Hebrews chapter 1, and we're on verse 6. We're in a section that is telling us that Jesus Christ is superior to angels. Superior to angels. As we saw last week and the week before, Christ is unique in the sense that, for one thing, he's God from all eternity. Angels are created. Jesus is creator. And we also looked at the passage last week about uh, the beginning of Christ in verse 5 where it says, You are my son today, I have begotten you, and I will be a father to you, and he will be a son to me, which was a citation of Psalm 2 in 2 Samuel 7. We talked about how those scriptures are used prophetically last week. Now we come to verse 6 and it says, And when he again brings the firstborn into the world, he says, Let all the angels of God worship him. It looks like a pretty simple verse, but when I went to look at, look at up the details, it turns out the translation of this verse has been uh, debated for centuries as to what, it, what exactly it means. It could, uh, for one thing, again, can mean uh, when he says again, or can mean as a two American standard has it again, when, when he again brings the firstborn into the world. So to what again refers is not clear. What is meant by world is also not necessarily clear. Yes. He's talking about the first incarnation and the second? Yeah, no, or whether he's just saying again to introduce yet another biblical citation. Like again, meaning here's another verse, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, leaving it unclear when this bringing the firstborn into the world, which is still unclear in any regard because we don't know whether it's talking about the first advent or something else. Um, and I'll tell you, uh, William Lane has a very interesting take on this that, I'll, that I want to... In verse 5 it has that again also. I know, exactly. So that would tend to make you think that it's just another citation. citation. Okay. By saying when he again brings us a numerical standard has it, it, it makes you think of the return of Christ. In other words, when Christ comes back into the world, at that point the angels will worship him. Now, here's the fact is you're not going to go into some theological error no matter what. Right? Because the first time when Jesus came into the world, did not the angels worship him? At, at, at Bethlehem, remember the angels that appeared and announced Messiah? So it would certainly be true for the first advent. And we know that it will be true of the second, because you read in Revelation that the angels that are coming with him and all the worship that happens when Christ returns. And, but you have William Lane, this other, uh, who I think is probably one of the better Greek scholars to write on this. He thinks it's at the ascension. He thinks that when Christ ascended into heaven, that's the session in which the angels are worshiping him. And his reason is because of the same Greek word world is used in 2 5. So look at. Hebrews 2 and verse 5. The word there, by the way, is oikumen. Oikumen. For world? Yeah. Is, 
what, what's, what, what Greek word for world back in verse 2 when it said through whom he also made the world? Uh, that's a different, that's word, a different word. A different word, isn't that like era? sinners and fallen, 
or redeemed. I think when Peter says being partakers of the divine nature, I think he means it in a, obviously in a dependent sense of God somehow working in us. We don't become divine nature. It's impossible. You right. can't become God. Yeah, because God is for all eternity. Yeah. 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 We don't do that. I didn't mean to go there at all. Yeah, I know that. We just want to make sure you weren't here. That's yeah. where the manifested sons of God went. Exactly. The error that they took on was that they were the higher level Christians and they were actually gods. Right. In, in a sense. That's what they said. They were off. Okay. Sorry, you've been very patient. Oh, yeah, I don't know. This is just a simple comment. I don't know. You're getting back to angels again about praising or whatever. Could there be a fourth time, like the rapture? Or that's. Well, I think that what we'll find is that every time some significant event happens having to do with Messiah, angels are involved. And they are worshiping. I think it will be true. For all eternity. It definitely was true in Bethlehem. It's definitely true, I believe, in the Ascension. That definitely be true of the Second Coming. So we're not going to go wrong, whatever we decide. And the, the Greek is a little bit vague, and that's why we can't tell. The main thing is, what does he mean by world? Oikomene. Yeah, it could mean the, it means the inhabited, inhabited uh, world. So it could be this one, or it could be the one to come, because the same word is used in 2-5, right? Wasn't there an angel there when the women were at the tomb? Yep. Everything that happens is significant. There's angels involved. With women. That's true. <laughs> and uh, we notice that. Okay. Either. But, uh,
Let's see here. I'll better pick somebody. Okay, right? Yeah, your Bible. Mm-hmm. You better. You're preaching today. Yeah. <laughs> no. Psalm 89, 27. Some churches, the pastor don't even need to bring the Bible. Psalm 89, verse 7. 89.27 I also shall make him my firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. Yeah, that's uh, messianic. And there means highest, the preeminent. Not just the order of but the preeminent one. So it's a title of honor expressing priority in rank. And that goes back to the Old Testament. The firstborn son was the one who was going to have the inheritance. And, you, and that extends into the New Testament. But what happens is, um, I, Carson's had a lot of good writing on this. He's shown that as the, type, the, the term firstborn developed throughout history, by the time we get to the New Testament, it, it had almost dropped the meaning of being first in line to just the one who was going to inherit the one who is the inheritor, the preeminent one. Right. And you find a lot of instances. So Jacob, in a sense, became that. The firstborn, even though he really wasn't. Even though, and you see that in Romans 9. Yeah. So because of, the, because of the blessing going to him as if you were the firstborn. So Christ is the one who inherits all blessings and who is the preeminent one. And we have a t- text that says he's the firstborn from among the dead, which is talking about the one, the that was an extra reference. Oh, okay. <laughs> okay, that's all right. Yeah, that one is so important. I think we should all turn to it. Turn. Uh, let's all turn to Colossians one fifteen to eighteen because that is a very parallel passage to what we're studying here in Hebrews. The Colossians, the whole concept of Colossians was talking about angels place relative to Christ as well, so at yeah. least that this part of it is a, is a parallel. Yeah, but in Colossians you have a similar issue because the people in Colossae had a very high view of angels, and they looked to angels to try to keep them from getting uh, bad fate. All right, I wrote an article about that and published it. But, but in order to correct that error, Paul teaches the preeminence of Christ. Colossians 1, starting with verse 15. And he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Now again, you have to take that in the sense of preeminent one in his uh, deity, because the Jehovah's Witnesses will say, well, see, he was the first created being. But that's heresy. <laughs> right? That's the old area heresy that they church battled for a hundred years in the fourth century. That's the area heresy. doesn't mean that Jesus was the first created being. And the next verse here explains that as we read on. For by him all things were created, right. both in the heavens and the earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones, dominions, rulers, and authority. All has been created through him and for him. So all things are created by him, through him, and for him. And then 17 says, he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Yeah. So firstborn there obviously means preeminent one, not created being. Because he was, that certainly would not be the biblical doctrine. So, the preeminent one who is the creator. And the reason for the Paul to say this in the Colossians is that now all things are in him and all things are holding together. So these principalities and powers, the stoichia that he uses in the Greek word here in Colossians 2, all of these things are subjected to Christ. 
And that if you are in Christ, therefore you lose your reason to fear these beings that are out there. Not to fear angels, fallen, or otherwise. Because you're in Christ and He's over all of them. Okay? In 18, as we go on, he's the head of the body of the church. He's the beginning. He's the firstborn from the dead. Oh, yeah. So that he himself will come to have first place in everything. So Jesus is, is the first place the, ribbon. The first place <laughs> in everything. Yeah. So I think Colossians makes it abundantly clear that the term firstborn has not to do so much with order of existence, but of preeminence of rank. Right? Yeah, Paul explains it. I mean, he's talking about Paul makes it real clear. Yep, David. See, we're learning good theology. It's not even 930. In the Old Testament, I think the first bar would have the rank in the Old Testament scheme of things. In the, in the New Testament, we tend to not be concerned about rank. Between peoples. But in the Old Testament, the, the firstborn was the one who had to spend a lot of special privileges, but also responsibilities. The firstborn was responsible to take care of his parents, take care of the family estate, take care of, of, of the widow if there was one, whatever was necessary. That was his responsibility. But he also got a bigger inheritance and had special privileges. And I think if someone was adopted, in that case, I, I think if the they'd one less, they'd have less. All the, of the, the, the Was there much of a concept of adoption in the Old Testament? Well, it was required in the of family. If there was widows or um, if, if somebody's family was left in the lurch, the other family were responsible to take care of them. Even adopting a wife with your brother and yeah. Yep. You had to bring up somebody else's wife. Have a sense of uh, order and status and uh, uh, it was more of a duty and a, and a thing, whereas the adoption, like first adoption in the New Testament, seems to be more of a, of a, of a placing. We're, we're adopted into the yeah. in, in, into into the family of God, which is more of a think of status than it is a legal status. And I don't know in the Old Testament, I don't recall any or much of a of a legal status of adoption, more than a duty to take care of. And, Right. I think you're right. I think it was a family's duty. You have any split between the Jewish concept, which was in the family, and the Roman concept, which was you could leave somebody in slave or whatever. Exactly. The Romans had a whole different uh, practice. But the New Testament says we're all adopted in, in the sense that nobody gets it by nature. You know, if you don't become born again, you can't be part of the family. That's why I'm talking about. So I was just wondering about this adoption thing. How do we look at it as Gentiles? Are, are we any inferior to the Jews then if we're adopted? Well, we all become sons of Abraham by faith, not to neglect the privileges of the natural branches. I think that you want to look to Romans 11. On that so that, anyway, what I was going to say is the Jews will have more privilege than we the Gentiles? Not necessarily. No. It's that passage in Romans and it said if God will will uh, take out the real branches and graft in wild ones, then we better have the same fear and trembling because yeah. you can put back the real ones as well. But the real key is that you actually believe in Messiah and become part of the blessings that way. 
And Paul says that for a Jew to reject Messiah and a Gentile to believe in Messiah, the Gentile is better off. Because everything, all the blessings are found in Messiah. And it grieved his heart when that happened because he felt that the gospel should go to the Jew first. Okay, yeah, Diane. Um, in our society, adopted children have a different legal standing than children born into a family. And you have committed yourself to keeping that child and nurturing and, and uh, having that child for the rest of his life, no matter what happens. If you have an African-born child that is something goes haywire and you need the state to step in and send them to someplace or another, yeah. you can do that, but you can't do that with an adopted child. Really? I never do that. Well, so you can get rid of your regular kids, but we adopt them. We adopt them. <laughs> well, then I get God stuck with us. You know, <laughs> yeah, since we have better standing. Uh, I was going to read a little blurb from Pistemacher about the translation issue. The question remains in the translation from the Greek read and again when God brings his firstborn into the world or but when God shall bring again his firstborn into the world. The first translation is a reference to the birth of Jesus when a multitude of the heavenly hosts praise God and appeals near Bethlehem. The second translation is an amplification of Jesus' discourse on the end of the age. At the end of time, he will send his angels with a trumpet call, Matthew 24 31. It is the angels will worship the Son when he returns to the close of the age. So, it's not... Um, the point works in Paul, and we don't know who wrote Hebrews, but the author of Hebrews, the point works either way. Either way, Christ is superior to angels because they worship him. And angels are not objects of worship in the Bible. And when someone started to worship an angel, what happened? He said, don't do that. The angel would say, don't do that. No, no, no. At least a good one. Yeah. Saying that an angel life is quite an awful. Yeah, the good ones say don't do it. The, the evil ones uh, want to be an object to worship. Uh, yes? A uh, quick question, and this may be redundant to folks, but with angels, they're created beings, God created them, they have free will? Well, that's... I mean... That, that sort of strikes to the heart of the debate about free will, as a matter of fact, because one version of free will teaching says that Whenever a creature has free will, it's a certain thing that they'll misuse it. And I, I was debating a guy once I said that, and I said to him, well, you can't say that because you have two-thirds of the angels as a counterexample. Two-thirds of the angels, however free they are, they're obviously free enough to rebel because a third of them did. But two-thirds of them never did rebel, and it doesn't mean they aren't free. Okay. Now, the question remains, well, why did the third rebel and not the other two-thirds? Well, they, actually, Peter calls them elect angels. So God preserved two-thirds of them from falling, however he chose to so do. Now, the reason for the problem about that is that a misdefinition of free will confuses people. And if you read Edwards, he solves it, but it's very difficult to read Edwards. You want the easy version? Yeah. All right, here's the simple version. People who say that free will means the actual possibility of choosing between two options, either of which may happen, 
In other words, it could go this way or it could go that way, and my choice determines which way it goes. According to Edwards, that definition of free will is not biblical. It doesn't answer anything. All right? Because I, I was just listening to my sermon from Matthew 18 on the little ones, and it, and it says it's necessary that offenses come by the woe to whom it comes. If, if it's if to be free, you have to have the actual ability to do the contrary, then we won't be free in heaven. Does that make sense? Give, it, give, it, give a concrete example of that. Well, if it's a certain thing that once we're in heaven, we won't sin. At least I hope it is. No, I don't. I don't think. The Bible doesn't foresee us rebelling again once we're in heaven, right? And, and it's a certain thing that two-thirds of the angels will never rebel. So in the greater scheme of things, whatever causes the certainty, and somehow it has to be God that does. I mean, how is it certain that we won't sit in heaven while God has to make it certain? If it was totally depending on us, we could, we could conceive of sin. But so, whatever causes the certainty that we don't sit in heaven, the fact is that we won't and we'll still be free, right? And so Edwards, see, but, um, Keith, could you just See if that better chair could give me riots. Well, this is this was better for bad guy. I really understand most of the. All right, all right, okay. So follow me on this because it's very important. So Edwards just totally showed that that definition of free will doesn't work for a lot of things, it's, it, it, but it's, but Arminians cling to it like it's their, their lifeblood. This definition of free will, you have to have the option to actually choose something else, and it couldn't really happen. Otherwise, you're not free. Well, then you have the, uh, just one more example. There is is if if that definition of free will is true, then God, by definition, is not free. That's what Edward said. Because God can. Oh, we have a very clear. God cannot lie. Okay, it's impossible for God to lie. Right. Therefore, in one sense, God, you know, isn't free in that sense. In the sense that choosing between two options. He's always going to choose not to lie. But because of his nature. But in that, in another sense, God is more free than anybody else in the whole uh, cosmos. Because he's free from the things that... Moral evil. Moral evil. Right. Okay, so now Edwards, if, this, if you read Edwards, all this is very difficult to read. But he, he makes that argument. And by the Arminian definition of free will, God is not free. And therefore, the definition needs to be trashed. <laughs> okay, and now what uh, definition does Edward, Edwards offer in replacement for the definition of the actual ability to do two different things, either of which could be actualized? His definition is this. Freedom of the will is the, the ability to choose what one pleases. All right? And so if it pleases God to choose good, He's free. Alright? If it, if it pleases God to always be perfect and, and blameless and holy, because it's his nature to be so, he's free. If it pleases the alcoholic to always drink, I guess he's free. He's free in his bondage. In other words, he can go buy a quart of whiskey any time he wants. Nobody's stopping him from doing it. But look, but he's not really free to quit unless something changes, right? Unless his desire changes. Unless his desire changes. What Edwards talks about, our desires determine our choices. So, 
if God creates a being like the holy angels and ensures that in their case their desires are not evil by however, by whatever nature he gives them, or by whatever act of gracious preservation that he showers on these holy angels, it is assured from all eternity that those holy angels shall never sin, but it does, it does not negate their freedom. I was debating, remember we went to debate this with Dr. Clark, and you and I, Jonathan. Yeah. We have an Armenian uh, professor that we wanted to discuss a book with, so we all in his office and talked about it. And he even admitted that there was some validity to that argument. Yeah. He, said, he said, for example, he gave himself as an example. As I travel all over, and I've never once been tempted to be sexually involved with another man. Because the reason he gave that example is because it's not his nature. So there isn't anything in me that that sounds desirable. In fact, it sounds really bad to me because of just who I am. So he said, I'm still free. So he would have to admit that he's free freely choosing not to do that. But on the other hand, it's not like there's a, there's a real option. Because of the other desires that... Oh, yeah. We, have, you can, yeah. we all have other desires. We may not have that desire. So we already think we're real righteous because we don't sin in some way that somebody else does. But we don't even want to. I, I'll never get addicted to knitting. I <laughs> guarantee <laughs> I used that defense once when somebody told me I sinned by watching Monday Night Football. <laughs> it's always easy to resist what you don't like anyhow, so it's no virtue on your part. Now, are you seeing what I'm saying about this? Okay, so we can therefore in heaven be totally free from sin and still have free will. Well, that, that's the whole, because God will give us a nature that only wants good, so therefore yeah. we have sin. Yeah, well, let's bring okay. this. Uh, Pete has been pretty patient there. I don't think we can get into the subject of free will without touching on the subject of predestination. Recently, I read something about predestination that's kind of changed my mind. I guess it's like, you know, if God knows what we're going to do with that, we're not. There are people who are there for the moment, but the definition of that is that God wishes not the law of hell, but our free will is involved. We can look at the life of a Christian and accept Christ. Right? 
<laughs> well, how do we get into this in Sunday school? <laughs> see, normally this is a sign of a misspent youth and too many hours in the seminary library. <laughs> but but it, by logic, you know, you can talk about the eternal now of God. As long as we're here, let's finish the discussion. All right. If something future causes something in the past, you have a, a logical conundrum. Because biological relationship of effect is dependent on its cause. And the cause has to exist before the effect. So God's foreknowledge exists in eternity before there's anybody to make a choice. Alright? And if those future choices cause the foreknowledge, you have backwards causation. And even William Lane Craig is one of the most brilliant uh, philosophers and debaters in, in uh, today alive, but he's one of the best at debating atheists. He's brilliant. Even he admits that you can't have that. It's going to be rational. So he has this concept called middle knowledge to try to uh, answer it. And it's real complex, so I'm not even going to go there. Now, the other option is just to say God predestined, that's what he said, that's what it means. To me, that's easier. Does it mean that we're not responsible? No. Does it, mean that we, does it mean that we don't really have to believe the gospel? No. Does it mean we don't have to preach the gospel? No. Does it mean that sinners don't have to repent? No. We have to preach the gospel. We have to believe the gospel. We have to repent. We have to turn to God. We have to trust Him in faith. And that nobody's off the hook based on God's, whether it's His foreknowledge or His eternal decrees. However, if and when we do repent, we have to give all glory to God. All right, uh, later. Just that thing with God, just because God heals someone good, a doctor, that doesn't mean that God doesn't heal the person, for instance. He uses means. He uses means, and those would be the means that he uses. Right, right. God uses means, and the gospel is his means of saving sinners. And I've got one more thing I'll tell you to just put in the pot here, but then keep the first key. The fact that that predestination exists, we believe, is a scriptural truth. But that remains hidden behind God. We don't see that. Obviously, I don't see my name written in here. The only reason I know that I'm saved is because I believe the gospel. Right. And that that's what's presented to me in the means. And that though election and predestination do exist in God, my faith is that I'm predestined. My faith isn't in my election. My faith is that Christ came down and delivered to me a, a word of hope from God himself and that I can believe in that. And because I believe, I know I'm there, but it's not the inverse. Election, election what it does is marks you out to do the cross. Not, not something that happened before the foundation world. The, the, the act of election, regeneration, this is all talking about triune God collectively redeeming us. But the, the center, what actually redeemed us, was the work of Christ on the cross. And that's always what our, our view, what, so our eyes, where, where, what we're fixing our eyes on. Well, in the, on the person who endured it, because the, the power of the cross is continuing through our, high, our great high priest. You know, we always think of it as a, you know, just an event in the past. The power of the cross is eternal. It's, it's fixed in the person of Christ. So that is where we fix our eyes. Uh, let me, I want to add one more thing I wanted to say about Edwards. And it will be done with Edwards, all right? 
Uh, we did a whole men's retreat on it one time, just on Edward's doctrine of uh, freedom of the will. This, this, what he, what Edward's, this one argument that he put forth, he spends a whole chapter proving God's foreknowledge. There are some who deny it. The only way you can escape Edward's conclusion is to deny foreknowledge altogether. It's something do. I think that's why they do it. But assuming you accept the doctrine of foreknowledge that God does know everything that's going to happen, Here's what Edwards does. He has this whole chapter on certainty. And he says, if God foreknows all that will happen from all eternity, therefore, all that will happen is certain. Why? Because God can't be wrong. God can't know something one thing in a way, and it turns out to be another way. He'd be wrong. Man. So, any foreknowledge that God has creates certainty. Absolute, ironclad certainty that essentially everything will happen as God knew it from eternity, if foreknowledge is true. So, Edwards, in his logic, he's, I think he's one of the most brilliant men who's ever thought about these things in the history of theology. So that's what I think about Edwards. Certainly the most brilliant American theologian. And so he, he, he lays all that out. And then he comes to an interesting conclusion, and this is very logically valid. He said, if foreknowledge means absolute 100% certainty of all that shall ever come to pass. Now, we don't know what that is, because God hasn't chosen to reveal it, but we're assuming God knows it. Right? So God knows everything that shall happen, therefore it's all certain. He says, therefore, Arminians who believe in foreknowledge have exactly the same amount of certainty for what shall happen as we do. He's a, a Calvinist who believes in God's decrees. He says, because if you have 100% certainty based on foreknowledge, if you add decrees to foreknowledge, decrees meaning God decreed from before the foundation of the world, you've added no certainty. You can't add something to 100%. You haven't added a certain thing. So he says, therefore, if we be guilty of fatalism, as they always say, they are just as guilty. And Edwards just nailed that thing so powerfully. And the only escape is Peter to foreknowledge. So that's why you have your great points and your, uh, who's the? Pinnock. Pinnock and all of these guys are denying foreknowledge. They're fighting their only escape. The only way the future can be open is if God doesn't know what it's going to be. That's scary. <laughs> you do that today. Yeah, now, I don't know how people get comfort on the idea that the future could go a lot of different ways and God could be wrong and the whole thing would go hit up that there could be no kingdom of God, possibly. Okay. Well, yeah, I'm just kind of curious. It sounds like old concepts of Arminian and uh, Calvinism are the true. There's some, some in each that are true or what. How, how do you, and Ryan, peg yourself on that? Well, I would, I would say, personally, I do not believe the Bible teaches that election is based on anything God foresaw in us. I don't see that taught in the Bible. In other words, I don't believe that God of eternity looks out in the future and sees Bob making the right choices. And then, because I've seen me making the right choices, then he says, okay, I decide Bob will only laugh. Because two things are wrong. Number one, the Bible doesn't teach that. Number two, my choice is backwards causing God's knowledge. And that's irrational. But he knew you were going to make that choice. Of course he did. Yeah. Here's, here's the way I would... But the cause has to be found in God. Right? Here's the way I would encapsulate it biblically. Both Bob and I 
share the same view of salvation. And here's what we believe. Salvation, from beginning to end, is 100% grace. 100% grace. No works. Grace. And when we really get down to it, the only way you can get to that is through the, the doctrines of grace, believing that, yes, have I, have I quote-unquote, chose Christ? Yes, I have. But why did I choose Him? Because of an act of grace beforehand. The Lord filled my heart up with His Holy Spirit. Yeah. Pete. I'm going to read this verse. This is my interpretation Exactly what we were talking Through about. All grace. Now remember this: if you take the gospel out of it, then you have hyper Calvinism, and that's false. Um, if you want to read a good little book on this, read Spurgeon versus hyper Calvinism. <laughs> because there, what I mean by that, there are these people who just sit back and say, "I'm one of the elect." And in fact, kind of like what David Fuller said, you know, that's the apostates to say that. I mean, if that's what they're trusting in. God must have chosen me. Why? Because I'm Dutch. No, I don't think so. There's nothing, there's nothing in us that will give us confidence. But um, it, the means by which God does bring faith into the life of sinners, saving faith, is gospel preaching. And gospel preaching is, is the means. It's absolutely essential. And any time somebody thinks, well, God is going to save, he's going to save, so why should we send out missionaries? Why should we go out on the street? And why should we preach the gospel? Such a person is, done, is, is doing huge damage to the gospel. No way. You, you'll never get that idea. You'll never get that idea. Let me, let me give you an example from right from the scriptures that's so powerful. We did this one on the radio when we went to Romans. Paul in Romans 9 says, my heart is full of sorrow and anguish over my brethren the Jews. I can worship myself a curse from Christ for their sake. Hey, Paul's passion could have been greater for the Jews than what he had. In the sense that who could worship themselves a curse from Christ? But when he finishes Romans 9, he says, but I know that the reason only some Jews are saved is because God only intended to save a rebel. That's the answer he gets. Does it diminish his passion? No, because Romans 10 once says, My prayer for my brothers the Jews is for their salvation. And so, even though you know if you went into the synagogue and preached to every person there the gospel, as Paul did in Acts, that the majority of life there are going to reject it, which would be the same if you went into a bar and preached Gentiles. They're going to reject it too. It doesn't make the Jews worse, they're humans that are prone against the gospel. But, because God has his people there that he's going to save out of wherever they are, he preached the gospel with passion and conviction, and God will use that. We don't know who they are. And we have no idea. Besides all this predestination of foreknowledge and whatever we want to talk about, it's always a secret and it's in the mind of God. And he hasn't revealed it. But knowing so it doesn't change it. But no, two, two points. First, knowing that God does have his people out there, I think, motivates evangelism. Yeah. Paul, Paul says... 
Um, I endure all, in, in 2 Timothy, I endure all things for the sake of those who are chosen, so that they too may obtain eternal salvation. Now, going out in the, I, you can preach to everyone, but you know that because you have the seal of the Almighty on the Gospel, He's going to draw in people from all tribes and nations. I mean, you can preach the Gospel without apology, not without taking it away. It's, it frees you. The second thing I want to talk about is, is, is kind of uh, finishing the thought about um, grace and, and where we stand. You know, I said grace from start to finish, and the text that uh, Pete read, he talks about the start. We, we, um, the Lord uh, grants us faith. He, he it regenerates us. Okay, so faith, faith in Christ, the gospel's there. Um, why am I saved now? Well, because the Holy Spirit is keeping me. He's keeping my heart and mind fixed on the cross. Why am I going to be saved in the future? Because the Lord has promised He's going to finish His work. That is the doctrines of grace. Grace from the beginning to end. And the means are always <coughs> means of grace. We, we believe here, some of you are fairly new to the congregation, we have a little different version of means of grace, although certainly biblical. Uh, means of grace in, a tradition, in the traditional or liturgical churches are usually word and sacrament. That's what they would say. Well, at Protestant, Catholics have all kinds of means. <laughs> Word and sacrament. But Ryan Fisher's sermon wrote an article some years ago on Acts 242 where it says they fellowship around apostles' teaching, prayer, prayer, fellowship, apostles' teaching, breaking bread, prayer. And so that the means of grace are fellowship, prayer, and, and the Word of God. And that if we are if those three things are central to all that we do, that we're praying, that we are encouraging one another daily, as is well, it's still called the day, as we'll say in Hebrews, we ever get that part. Utilizing our gifts, yeah. edifying one another. Whatever gifts God gives us to edify the body, to be there for one another, to love one another, to care for one another, and to be caring for the flock as the fellowship, sharing of a common life together, and then this teaching of the Word of God that is central to everything that we do. Everything's bound together in that. Yeah, and in those three things, and that includes the sacraments, if you want to use that, we don't use the term, we call them ordinances, baptism and the Lord's Supper is included in that. That those things will cause the people of God to grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord. And that all this stuff, I've had conversations all week with people who are going to churches that aren't hearing the Word of God. I got, I got so many phone calls. It, it's an epidemic. Not hearing the Word of God is an epidemic. And I, and I had lunch with a couple that were talking to me about it. I had a phone call from a guy in St. Paul, and I had another phone call from somebody in another city in Minnesota. And I got an email from people across the country, a couple of emails. And they're all saying the same thing. Well, oh, my pastor who got into the seeker movement, one lady called me and says, I've been four weeks in a row to a, there's a charismatic church that she's going to, so they believe the Bible. So four weeks in a row, I've not heard a single Bible verse referenced. Zero. For four weeks. Another guy called up and he said, I'm going to Pentecostal church. And they were a gospel church and now they're going to seek her and they're going to follow Ruth Warren instead of the Bible. And I went to tell the pastor that this was wrong and they're going to kick me out of the church. How dare you want to hear the Bible at our church? Uh, and so this is an epidemic. And what's why? Why uh, I don't I, think, I don't know why uh, other than it's the end times pass. That's what Chandler felt is. Uh, by the way, it was fun to be on the radio. Everybody hear that? Oh yeah, yeah, I hear that. It was fun. 